Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, and sitting with me tonight, I have two special guests. Who are they? They are Laser and Samson. They are my grandsons. First grandson, second grandson. And it's so glad to have them on the show. So, boys, uh, let me ask you a couple things first. We'll start with you, Laser. Laser, tell us about what you like to do. Well, I like to play video games. He does. He likes to play video games. And I like to play machine games. And, and Samson likes to play machine games, video games and machine games. And do you boys get along with each other? Sometimes. Do you love your brother? Yeah. Do you love your brother, uh, Laser? Yes. Okay. And before I let you go, is there anything you want to say to your mama and papa? Well, I'll say that I love them. Oh, very nice. Do you uh, want to say something? I'll say, I'll say, I'll say that I love them. Oh, very nice. Well, I love you, boys. Thank you for being on the show. Go to, go to more, more now. Okay. Uh, now we got to um, shut those little brats up. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for that. That was a total joke. They don't know the meaning of quiet on the set. Samson, we're doing the show. You have to go on now. Okay. Hey, if you're not attending a church but you want to uh, learn the word, join us online at campus. Go to www campuschurch.tv every Sunday, or you can watch the archives. 10 a.m. is milk, 2.30 is meat. We're halfway through the book of Acts in, the, in milk, and we are in the first chapter of Revelation in meat, 10 and 2.30 respectively. I'm personally convinced that these teachings will help people uh, who are tired of brick-and-mortar uh, religion, and they just want to hear the Bible and views about the Bible and the best teachings we can give. They're not always correct, but they're the best we can do. And uh, you don't have to tithe to belong. You don't have to donate. You're not, you don't have to become a member. You don't have to sign a statement of faith. Uh, you don't have to agree with me as the pastor teacher. Uh, and there's no obligation to even attend or watch. Uh, but we just invite you to join it. Be, we're, we have a kind of a church community, local. And then we also have a community that joins us online. And you're welcome to be part of that. It's up to you, God leading, uh, to do as you are led. That's campuschurch.tv or join us live here in the studio church on Sundays at that time. Additionally, we encourage seekers to consider the contents of our latest book, Knife to a Gunfight. I usually hold a copy up here, but we don't need it. Listen, I, for the first time in my Christian life, 
I watched a Christian debate today. I have never seen a Christian debate on YouTube or watched one before, but I was kind of led to watch this. I don't know why. I attended one debate once here in Salt Lake City with a local pastor debating a Mormon. Uh, that was very uh, unsatisfying, but uh, I, I've never watched one, and I watched this. And having watched it, uh, I, I'm going to comment on that debate next week, but I'm convinced our approach is, is right in harmony with where it should be. I am convinced that the subjective Christian faith and letting people be who they are and move through the Bible, teaching it still, is the way to go. A knife is available at www.hotm.tv, and you can read it there. You can download a copy. You can get it through ebook. You can listen to the darn thing, me reading it, horribly as it is. And if you're financial straits, if you ask us, we'll send you one free. Just in encouraging you to consider, consider its contents. Knife to a Gunfight, Misinterpreting the Purpose and Place of the New Testament Today. And with that, how about a visit to our Board of Direction? <laughs> Paradoxical as we can be, I'm not going to get up and even, we don't even, we didn't even put the board up, but we're calling it that. Got a phone call from a young man who was worried about my statement that, again, doctrine doesn't matter. After watching um, that debate, I am more convinced of that statement. Doctrine does not matter. But let me qualify that and explain it. And I think this is going to be beneficial. The word theos means God, and ology is the study of a thing. So theosology, theology is how we say it, is a study of God, theology. Now, the study of God matters. It matters big time. That is a huge endeavor, and that's what reading Scripture is all about, the study of God, to know Him and His Son better. I would suggest that all Christians, if they are true Christians, uh, that theology is vital to them. In fact, all Christians are theologians, if you want to put it that way, because all true Christians are studiers of God. Everything that we do, we're studying God in that context. We drive our car, we see a rainbow. Christians think, oh, praise God. We see a beautiful mountain range, we see a beautiful scene, we say, praise God. We have blessings, we, we have trials, we go to God. We study Him and His interaction with us. So we are all theologians, we are all theologians. In Scripture, God reveals all those who seek and study Him, His will and His ways and His person, and then we know that to know Him and His Son is life eternal. So in the non-Christian world, uh, Islam and, and Buddhism and the like, they are theologians who study their God, or the general study of God. They're just called theologians. But true to Christianity, if you are a Christian, you're a Christian Theoslogian, and uh, you study the Old and the New Testament to discover God. Since Christian theology includes the phrase, the study of, Theos, the study of, we have come to, in our world, assign theologian to men and women who apparently possess better tools, intellect, education, academia, than the rest of us common folk. We call them our Christian theologians. Time and experience has shown, though, that while many professional Christian theologians 
have added a great deal of information for us, and we learn so much from their academic tools. Many a Christian theologian have allowed their intellect and those very tools to lead people far away from the true and living God. The equalizer in the study of God, the thing that makes the playing field level for all of us theologians, is the Holy Spirit. So you can take a PhD who's absent of the Holy Spirit and full of knowledge of the original ancient languages, and you can take a near illiterate who is full of the Holy Spirit or an illiterate, and you will find more truth over here than you'll find over here. And that's just the way it works, and that's, that's how God does it, by the weak things of the world. Now, it's not to say we don't benefit by the, the PhD's insights, but if they have the Spirit of God, they're far, far, far more effective. Some so-called Christian theologians have chosen to offer the world something called systematic theoslology, systematic theology. And that's where they go, and they take the Bible, and they read through it, and then they systematize the whole thing for you. But in the end, systematic theology winds up being nothing more than the Bible as seen through the mind of one man. All these guys who come up with systematic theology, in the end, it's really just their thoughts about what they think the Bible is saying. So not sure that the Bible was ever really intended to be understood through a systematic theological uh, approach. So theology. I believe every Christian is truly a a theologian because every Christian is involved in the study of God. That theology really does matter. It's very important. And that theology is a personal endeavor that's enhanced greatly by the Holy Spirit or else it's just academia, okay? So let me say that again. The study of God matters greatly to all who seek to know God and His Son which is defined as life eternal. Now, then we come to the thing called doctrine. You start with theology, the study of God. From that, you slip down and you come to, I think it's intos. I I might be wrong on that. And that's doctrine, okay? And that's the thing I said doesn't matter. But let me kind of clarify that. Doctrine does not matter if it means we treat others badly because of it. Doctrine doesn't matter if it creates division among people who, from a Christian perspective, are into the study of God. Doctrine doesn't matter if someone says, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the author and finisher of my faith. By faith in him, God's grace, I am saved. Uh, He resurrected from the grave. Those main things are good. But besides that stuff, all the other stuff doesn't matter. And doctrine doesn't matter if a person insists that their pet doctrine must be embraced by everybody else. Doctrine does not save us. Doctrine really is just our beliefs that come from our study of God. This is my belief, okay? I have studied God. I have studied Christ. I put my faith in God in Christ. But I believe baptism is not necessary. But I believe baptism is necessary. This is when doctrine starts to come into play. And and again, doctrine really doesn't matter if it is replacing agape love. In other words, no doctrine gives anyone the right to treat others badly. Anyone. It doesn't give me the right to treat LDS people or Catholics or uh, atheists badly. My doctrine cannot cause me to treat anyone badly. 
So what is doctrine? If theology is a study of God, doctrine might be the beliefs we maintain as a result of our study of God. The Greek word is didache. And from that, we get a word didactic. Didactic means when you look at someone and you say, I'm telling you this is it. That's a didactic statement. I'm telling you that you must be baptized in order to be saved. I'm telling you, you must speak in tongues. That's a didactic statement. And from didache, we get doctrine. Bottom line, doctrine is the beliefs of an individual or the beliefs of a group. And it can be any group. Philosophers have doctrines. Uh, uh, real estate agents have doctrines. Uh, political parties have doctrines. And of course, denominations have them. So while it simply means what is taught, what is instructed, uh, it is doctrine that divides. And doctrine that demands and doctrine that destroys the unity of people in their study of God uh, is not good doctrine. So what is the doctrine of the follower of Christ? What is the doctrine? What are the beliefs of the followers of Christ? And in my study of God and Christ, I have come to believe that true doctrine of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is given through John the Beloved in 1 John. And we've cited this many times. It says, And whatsoever you ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments, his instructions, his intole. That's the word, intole. His doctrine. We, we, whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his doctrine. Okay? Uh, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment. This is his intole. This is his doctrine. That we should believe on the name of the Son of uh, Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Believe, love. Our only doctrine. That's the Christian doctrine. If we could get to a point where Christians agree on that, that the only doctrine that we agree on is to believe and to love, I think we're going to get a lot further along. Believe on him and love one another as instructed. This is what John the Apostle forwarded here. He could have added baptism. He could have added ontology of God. He could have added a number of things, but he says this is the doctrine. So we have the study of God, and then we have the doctrine. Believe and love. Uh, we choose to live by faith, which God validates. He knows the heart and the faith that it possesses. And then we also choose to live by love, which other humans see, and by this know that we are his disciples. So everything else can be boiled down to things we disagree on and divide over and things which can be done uh, even in the pretense of allegiance to God. So, but there can be no pretense in true faith and true love. When men and women start bringing down other people's beliefs, this is what I believe from my study of God, uh, along comes divisions and denominations and debates and it's here that I strongly, urgently maintain that doctrine does not matter. Okay, we've been talking about the good news. <clears throat> and this led us into a discussion into how it's received. Okay, God appoints us to believe and receive the good news. That's called uh, the monergist way. It's one way, like monarchy. I'm a monergist. God is the monergist. And <clears throat> monergism says, he says you must believe and you will. Or all people can and will freely choose to believe or not. How to discern which approach is true? We, we considered that the Spirit doesn't tell us alone. We talk about the Spirit being so important, primary here. But the Spirit alone doesn't tell us because the Spirit tells different Christians different things, apparently, because we all believe different things re relative to how the gospel is received.
So we go to the Word. We open up the Word, and the monergist finds passages that support their view, and the synergist finds passages that support their view. So the Word and the Spirit, those two combined, aren't able to solve our problem as to disagreement as to how the gospel is received. So in this situation, and we did this two weeks ago, we took a look at early church leaders and what they said on the subject of free will, admitting that they're imperfect. Quite frankly, there's a lot of heresy in early church leaders, but they're as close to the apostolic church as we can get, and we listen to their plain quotes about things. And in the last two weeks, we've seen nothing but a united front by the early church leaders for the first couple hundred years, maybe more, that says free will is absolute. Absolute. The monergist view did not come in until Constantine in 380-400 AD. This accomplishes several things for us. First, it causes us to rethink all the passages that the monergists use in Scripture. Now we can start to say, well, let's start looking at these passages in a way that's different from how they're using them. Second, it removes the ideology that human beings who are made in God's image are without an ability to choose things. That we all can, we all do, and we are all accountable for the choices we make. Now, there's a lot of factors that will come into play with that, with our lives and our experiences and our genetics and our temperament and all that stuff, but God understands that. But we are responsible according to those early church leaders and all the quotes we gave. Take the sway of what the early church leaders said about free will, and we can't help but feel sort of overwhelmed. That's kind of what happened last week when I gave all these quotes about, hey, it's free will, don't kid yourself, you're choosing and you'll be responsible. After the show last week, my youngest daughter, Delaney, she attended a four-year university that's a Christian, non-determinist, non-monergist college in Southern California. And she came up to me and she was just amazed at all the quotes that supported free will. And, um, but she wondered and she said, but doesn't it lead to pride? And uh, that's pretty smart because that's what Paul says. He, he, he gives us a quote, and we're going to talk about that in a second, that, that says, listen, this is not of works, lest any man should boast. <clears throat> so it was a great insight, because if we admit that we're all responsible for the choices we make, wouldn't this translate into pride for those who choose the gospel versus those who don't? I mean, wouldn't, because we're making the choice, wouldn't we naturally walk about and say, well, I chose Jesus and you didn't. I deserve heaven, and hence her question. So let's talk about this. Central to Delaney's concern, we're faced with this very well-known passage. You ready? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that was kind of the point that she was bringing up. And many people bring up astute, scholarly Calvinists say we don't choose because we would become proud. So she was able to articulate that without probably even knowing that that's what the Calvinists say. So I think it's important to ask, what is the object of those, pass of those passages I just read to you being presented? And I would say that the object is salvation. 
For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourself. It, salvation, is the gift of God and not the product of our works, lest any man should boast. So grace, if we put grace over here, we might put God's part right here. God's part in the thing, and it's grace. And over here we have man's part, and it's faith. By grace are you saved through faith. And in the middle we have salvation. God has gracefully given us the gift. Man has to have faith. Salvation is had. God has done his part, not of works lest any man should boast. He has offered salvation. We have faith in it. And that synergist approach occurs when people choose to receive what he's given. So that is the syncretist view. It is not, salvation is not the product of anything that we have done to create it. God has given us the salvation. We don't produce it. We don't cause it to exist. That's, salvation has been established by him and his grace, summarized as the good news. He, through his grace, has given us that gift. We do not do anything to create it. It's been created without us. It's offered to us without our input at all. That's what it means when it says it doesn't come by your works. It comes by his efforts to bring it to us, all right? So it's kind of like automobiles. If you're going to go buy a new car, you don't go and get the car and it's missing tires and an engine and you go and you melt rubber and you create an engine and you stick it in and you say, here's my new car. Uh, You go to a dealership and the manufacturer creates for you salvation. He creates, she creates the car. It has everything you expect in a functioning, perfect new car. And they've done that for you, all right? So salvation is a fully created product. We do nothing to cause it or create it. It's done by his grace. So let's say, stay with me on this illustration, that BMW fine car manufacturer worldwide has decided that for some reason it is going to give every inhabitant in the world who can drive a new 720i, brand new, okay? Totally free to anyone who accepts their invitation, a new BMW. Those cars come to you complete, ready to be delivered. There's no efforts, there's no labor required to receive one. No labors to create the car. It's been created. It's been manufactured, which we're likening to salvation. All we have to do is receive it, okay? And that is you receive it by telling BMW when they bring the car to your house, I'll take it, okay? That is not a work. That's just saying I'll receive it. I'm willing to take it, all right? Note what Paul says, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It, salvation, is the gift of God, not of works. Because Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith and not of works, we clearly see that faith is not a work. We clearly see faith is not a work. Though there are many religionists who will try to tell you differently, oh, faith is an effort. It's not an effort. It's simply believing. That's not a work. Because he says, we are saved by grace through faith and not of works. He delineates and distinguishes between faith and works. They're two different things. Just as grace and works are two different things. 
So again, Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith and not of works. So they are mutually, mutually exclusive entities, faith and works. Don't try to combine them. I know there's a religious group that will say, well, faith is a work. It's not a work. Salvation, salvific faith is not a work. All right. So appealing to our BMW example, hang with me, who represents God offering to the world, everybody, a brand new 720i. BMW has created, produced, assembled this car, and they have told the world that they will gift one to all who will receive it. All that person has to do is trust that they're going to deliver it, or when they deliver it, take it from them. Either way. There is nothing in this that is of works. Stay. So nobody has a reason to boast. Now, some might say, well, those who told BMW that they want to receive the car could look at those who said, I don't want a car, and they could say, we're smart enough to have received it. We, they could get proud at this group said yes and got a free car. That group didn't, and so we're smarter, and we, look, at we've all got brand new 720Is. Let's examine this, though. From a worldly, fleshly point of view, that idea may be true. Because the BMW is a luxury item and driving one, you would be esteemed in your flesh for having received it. BMW is giving away luxury automobiles. All who simply say they want it receive one. So if you're driving this thing and you're looking so cool and all the other group has one, they're looking so great, and then there's a group who didn't take advantage of it, those who are driving would probably say, you fool, you didn't receive it. How dumb. And they would boast. We might all agree that all who possess a BMW after the giveaway could see themselves as wise and all who didn't could be looked upon as fools. But we have to admit that upon hearing that BMWs would, were, be, were being given away, there would be a segment in this world, probably the super rich, who would say, oh, you mean all the people in India and Africa and and in the slums of the U.S. are going to be driving 720Is? I don't want one of those things. They've lost their value. They're just cheap. It's just given to everybody. They would refrain from accepting it simply because it was a free gift that had lost its value and had become cheapened. So, what if the product, stay with me, that is being given to the world wouldn't enhance the status of the person receiving it, but would instead cause them to appear foolish and poor and unwise to everybody else. Why would anyone receive such a free gift like that? One that would automatically, because this is what the gospel really does do when it's applied, make them less concerned about money, appearance, fame, power, but would instead make them meek and childlike, humble, cast out from the confines of the city. See, in this sense, we can see that what is really being challenged when we talk about the free presentation of the gospel is not about the faith. It's not about anything but the, the will. It's about the will. We're going to get there. This brings us back to the discussion of human will, free that it is. 
there's a marked difference between human will, between someone who is willing and someone who is willful. Okay? So you gotta, we've got to understand that when it comes to free choice. We all have a free choice will, but some of us are willing and others of us are willful. And this is the divider between those who freely choose the gospel and those who don't. Herein lies our answer as to why someone who truly but willingly receives the graceful gift of God's good news would never be proud because they received it. In opposition to the material wonders of a free BMW, the gospel is offered to people who first believe they really need it. The gospel is offered to everybody, but the people who receive it, they receive it because they really, really need it and they know they need it. Because they see themselves as sinful and alienated from God and so they embrace it quickly. Someone who does not see themselves as sinful before God would have no need to receive the free gift any more than the super wealthy would lower themselves to receive a free 720i. When all the lowlifes in the world are driving them now, you wouldn't see the super affluent driving them. You get it? So for starters, the free graceful gift of God must be seen as having value. It has to be seen as having value. The willful will not discover value in the free gift, but the willing will. So why would some be willing to receive his free gift? Because they see great value in it. Someone who receives something that is of value to them is grateful for it and not boastful for having received it. You're starting to see the motive behind receiving the gospel and why those who have truly received it through their free will would not be boastful. They're not boastful because they're grateful for it. They're not boastful because they know they did nothing to earn it. They're not boastful because they know it was God who gave that to them and without him giving that to them, they would be lost because they're sinful. So boasting would be lost in that situation and we don't have to worry about it. Next, if the gift being offered was going to bring a person down in this world, hey, I'm going to give you a gift, and when you receive it, you're going to lose the fellowship and esteem of the world. You want it? Hey, here it is. People are going to look down on you for receiving it. Okay? If it's going to reduce social standing and wealth and esteem among men, only those who truly understood their need for the gift would willingly receive it and in them would be no boasting at all. So we don't have to worry about boasting for our choice because we only would choose something that will lower our status in the world because we know we need it, because we're sinful, because we know there's nothing we can do. We're humble, we're broken, and that's the attitude that we would take for receiving it. We might like the gift of the gospel to a mother who has a four-year-old child, God forbid, who is in, has stage four cancer. This child has stage four cancer. Every doctor has said, there's nothing we can do. It's, it's over. She's at home. He's in his last stages of life. And there's a knock on the door. And she opens it. And there's a man standing there. And he said, I was impressed to come and bring you this. This is some water. And uh, if you give this to your dying boy and he drinks it, he will live. And she says, I don't have any money. And he says, it's free. 
And all you have to do is get him to just sip some of this water and he'll live. And desperate but uncertain, nowhere to go, anywhere, uh, the woman accepts the water, she gives it to the boy, and he's healed. Okay? Wherein would she boast? If she was an evil woman, and there are people like this, she might go, well, I did open that door to that stranger, and I did take that water, I didn't need to, and I did cause Tommy to drink it, and he didn't want to, but I made him. You know, and there might be some people out there who would do that, but most people would say, I'm so grateful that this came along. It was free. All I did was open the door and he offered it to me and I took it and my son is alive now because of it. That's the difference in the will and the willfulness. A willful woman or, or husband would have a different attitude about the son being saved by the water when it's all about them and selfish. But someone who really appreciates it and understands it is not going to boast. They're just going to be grateful that there's life in it. Willful people will think they don't need the good news. They think that they're, they think that they allow themselves to boast over the good news in their lives for having chosen it. That says automatically they haven't gotten it. Automatically. Show me someone who says, I have chosen Jesus rightfully and you need to as well. I'll show you someone who hasn't received it. It's the best way to see it. But willing people will humbly, gratefully praise God for making it available to them. They will know that they had a desperate need for the product and they would never boast because they had the will to choose it over death. So, quickly, what about the hereafter? The very same principles continue to apply. Do we have a willful approach? When I say hereafter, I mean after becoming a Christian. So you become a Christian. Do you have a willful approach to being a Christian? I will do this. I will do that. I will work it out. I will. If you do, you'll have a boastful attitude about your faith. But if you have a willing approach, God, please, God, please, God, please, I humbly petition you, help me. Willing, you will never boast. Willful, in your Christian walk, you will boast, and you'll become a religionist. And so you, we have both of those things prior to coming to know Christ. There's no boasting on someone who's willing. We have that going into our Christian walk. If you're letting him guide you, why would you boast? He's doing everything. But if you're a religionist and you, you're still holding the reins and you're willfully making yourself holy and right, you will boast. And then we have a problem on that end as well. Coming full circle tonight, I would suggest strongly that the study of God, theology, goes much, much further to supporting and endorsing personal willingness than doctrine. The study of God brings about a willingness versus doctrine often brings about willfulness. And because of that, we see the difference in the final product. With that, let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 590-8413. I don't know if we're going to have any callers tonight. I got some emails. We're going to take a look at this spot and come right back.
Traditionally, we have viewed Christianity as a brick-and-mortar, orthodox, institutionalized, objective religion. I'm a Christian, I do this. I'm a Christian, I must do that. Christians always do this. Traditionally, we view it that way because of what the Bible says. Subjective Christianity says every single person is at a different place in their life. The Holy Spirit works upon individuals in unique and diverse ways. You come to Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit touches you, and you proceed to, to follow God and Christ by and through that Spirit, and not through laws written in paper and ink, but by the Spirit that's moving you, cross-referencing it with what's written in the book. The benefit behind subjective Christianity is one person is saying God is a trinity and another person is saying God is a modalist and another person is saying this or that abinity. Subjective Christianity says seek God, hear the word taught, decide what's making sense to you and follow that. Why? Because you're going to be responsible before God on what you believe and what you do and how you walk your life. I won't be with you as a pastor. Billy Graham isn't going to be side by side with you when you go to the gates of heaven. You go alone. Your interpretation of the word by hearing and seeing is a subjective experience. And objective religion went away when Christ returned and Jerusalem was destroyed. That's the first part of uh, several, I think, uh, number 10 of frequently asked questions we get through emails. And Cassidy has, again, done a wonderful job of putting those together. There's going to be nine more coming. We're going to put them on the website, et cetera, and uh, about the questions we're constantly getting. But great job, Cassidy. Thank you so much. From Ryan, what's your opinion on the black Hebrew Israelites? Uh, it's like asking me my opinion on the white Indian Gentiles or the yellow Indonesian transvestites, or the Democrats, or the Republicans, or the communists, or the bicyclists. In Christ, we're all one. We're, in Christ, we are one. Uh, if the black Hebrew Israelites admit Jesus as Lord and Savior, they are my brothers and sisters. If they don't, they will be my brothers and sisters some point in time. And until that, I will receive them in love and help them understand the true and living God. Uh, if you just look at that name, the black Hebrew Israelites, you got division, division, division there. I mean, come on. Why, 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 why does it have to be that at all? Why does it can't be people? You know? Uh, I know, I know that's an extreme, but it's an interesting one. We got an email from Virgil I'm going to come to in a minute, but we got Charlie in West Valley. Charlie, you're on Heart of the Matter. Let me turn that thing down first. Okay. My question to you tonight, Sean, uh, really appreciate your show, and um, is what do you feel or how do you feel about in the free will process? Do you feel that salvation comes before the faith or does faith come after salvation? Um, it's one I've asked myself a few times. I just wanted to get your opinion on it. You know, it, it's a great question, Charlie, because you know it's, there's division run amok over that one. That's what divides the Arminius and the Calvinists. But in my estimation, God offers the gift, and it's out there. It's a finished gift. It's done. 
and he knows who is going to receive it and who isn't. So in a philosophical uh, approach, then it's already done. It's a foregone conclusion, and we're just waiting for someone to uh, realize it. But in a non-philosophical sense, I think salvation is there. Jesus, like it says in Revelation, is at the door. He knocks, and we open. And salvation isn't received until we freely decide to open, to receive that finished product. I believe that is part of the synergist uh, uh, relationship between God offering and allowing men and women to freely choose. So, and the reason that why that distinction is made in my mind is because as if he first bestowed salvation upon you and then you received it through your free will, to me that, uh, that crosses out free will and that's more of a monergist approach. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense. For myself, uh, I was broken and I received the Spirit and received the gift and then... Of course, then I became doctrinated, and and I've been a searcher ever since. But um, um, at that point, when I received it, then my faith started to grow, and I've been, you know, seeking ever since. Yeah. At that point, so thank, it's, a, it's a great thank question. You. And then my other question. Oh, go ahead. My other question was: Is what is the circle on your hand? You know. Uh, this is the, I have, I, have six, I have six symbols that are really important to me in the Christian faith. And this is the final symbol. This is the goal. And, uh, but uh, this is the goal. That's being with God right there in the center after this life and in this life. I had it purposely offset on my hand because we never really reach it while we're here. So in my flesh, I, I had it set off my hand instead of dead center because while we're here, we're constantly trying to get there, but we never really do. Ah, okay. All right, John, good speaking with you. Thanks, Charlie. Take care. God bless. Mm -hmm. This is from Virgil in New Zealand. He says, uh, love your thoughts. Uh, my favorite so far is on subjective Christianity and preterism. Unfortunately, here in Wellington, New Zealand, Every other Christian in my life is an objective Christian with a futurist view. Welcome to the world, right? Uh, he said, I'm glad I heard you speak on subjective Christianity before I went guns a-blazing with the doctrine of preterism. Now I'm a lot more gracious and rely more on the Spirit instead of being dogmatic with the Word. I don't want to be that guy at the picnic arguing. I love this. I also like your view on social and political justices. Christianity isn't about stopping abortion or gay marriage, but about Christ. It's the unseen, not the seen. Sure, I can disagree with things like abortion, but it's not a Christian thing. Like you said, Jesus and the apostles preached the kingdom, not marriage or abortion. The other interesting thing about preterism is that I'm seeing Scripture in a new light. And I'm telling you, if you consider the tenets of it, you will, when you read Scripture, start, things will start to unfold to you that you've never seen before. I'm no longer reading everything. I'm just applying and just applying it to me. It was to them time, place, and circumstance. This stops a multitude of potential goffs. He had to throw in goffs. I wanted to say gaffe until I had this Holy Spirit say, look it up, Sean, on your phone to how to pronounce, which I did, and it's goff. But you almost tricked me, Virgil. 
Anyway, I have one question. I was thinking about spreading your message around to my family and friends. Would If Then A Knife to a Gunfight be good books to help my family get a different perspective? And I think uh, both of them would be great. Uh, we will, if you contact us, Virgil, I want to see about what it would cost to get a case of If Thens to New Zealand. But Knife to a Gunfight's available in so many different ways online. You can turn them on to it. Uh, through that medium, so we can look at doing something that way. So just contact us. Uh, this said, uh, Sean, in your debate with Matt Slick, you said that you believe that in the end people will be reconciled to God, but only a few will be saved. Can you explain to me what that means? And when I said that, I knew, oh boy, I'm going to have to explain this uh, someday. And we talk about it often in campus. But since we're in Revelation, and we're, this is really timely, this question from Andrew S., Here's the deal. It says in Revelation that Jesus uh, has the key to the Hades and the death. We have to ask, to what death? Physical death? I think so. All will be resurrected because of him. Spiritual death, which we all have coming into this world? I think so. Believe on him and you're spiritually born again. But then there's also something called the second death in Scripture. And the second death is really, really limited in its scope. And there are so many opinions about what it is. But we know that it takes place in a place called the Lake of Fire. In the Lake of Fire, those who were in Hades, Hades gets dumped out. Everybody gets out of it. They stand before the great white throne. And then those whose names aren't written in the Lamb's Book of Life are cast into the Lake of Fire, which is in the presence of the Lamb and his angels. I believe Jesus has the keys to all forms of death. First, uh, physical, second, spiritual, and third, the second death. Now, let me ask you a quick question. If, this is going to be radical for you, if we are born spiritually dead, and if we ultimately die physically, and those people go to Hades because they don't believe and they're dead physically, so they're spiritually dead and physically dead, Hades is dumped out, they stand before the great white throne and they're thrown into the lake of fire to experience a second death in the presence of Jesus who has the keys to death. What do you suppose is dying in that second death? What is it that's dying? They're already spiritually dead and they're already physically dead. So what is dying? This has led Ellen G. White of, of uh, Seventh-day Adventist to say that's annihilation. That second death is the annihilation of the soul. Scripture doesn't support annihilationism. And because it doesn't, evangelicals say that's eternal punishment in flames of fire, where you will be in there screaming your brains out in a resurrected body forever and ever. That's the second death. But I want to tell you that I believe, because of all a bunch of other factors, which we haven't got into, that what is dying there is spiritual death. It's the death of spiritual death. Okay? It is the dying of being spiritually dead. And it comes by fire and brimstone, emitted from God. It's the rubbing away. It's that person who refused to accept Christ. He, in the presence of the Lamb and the uh, angels, is having that rubbed away. That is the second death of the first spiritual death. It's a, high, it's a very strange concept if you've never heard it, but that's what I believe is happening. And that way Jesus will be have complete victory, and God will be all in all. Now, Scripture says, those who don't go to that second death, 
They will be priests to God in Christ forever. That's what it says. So those are the ones who are saved. Those are the ones who, they're saved from that lake of fire and the, and the purging, which comes out of it. They're saved from that. They go directly to the throne of God and they become priests. They aren't hurt in the lake of fire is how Revelation puts it, hurt. They don't have their portion in the lake of fire as Revelation puts it. They go directly to God, they are saved. Those who go to the lake of fire, not saved, but they will come out and all will be reconciled. Will they be reconciled as joint heirs of Christ? No. Will they be reconciled as having been saved from the lake of fire? No. Will they be reconciled so that they can be priests to God in Christ? No. But they will come out and be reconciled because God is not going to lose to man's will or to Satan's will. That's what I mean by that. Check out Revelation this week if you uh, want to get online, Andrew, and you'll hear this explained in more detail. Kevin C. says... I heard music on Don, at the Don Preston debate uh, that was, that's composed and, and sung by my oldest daughter, Mallory. Uh, someday I hope to be able to afford some of your CDs. If you write us, we can get you a CD or two for free. Do you have any Christmas music? We don't have any Christmas music. Uh, but if you're looking for really good Christmas music, I suggest the Christmas music of Bad Religion. I think it's excellent. And, um, and then... He says, you use the word anarchist. Can you tell me what that means? And I don't use the word anarchist in and of itself. That means lawlessness. That means I am without a primary guide, without an RK, anarchist. RK, I have no RK. That's secular anarchism. I am not a secular anarchist. I believe in following the laws of the land. I don't like disruption, even though I break a lot of laws uh, because of my flesh. But, you know, I like order. Uh, but Christian, if you put Christian in front of anarchist, arche means the primary. You put Christ in front of that, that means he's my primary go-to. I am a Christian anarchist, meaning he is the first in all and nothing comes after it. I have no other law but Christ. I don't have any laws of lands that superimpose themselves above Christ. I have no written script that superimposes Christ. I have nothing that men can tell me I must do that superimposes Christ. I have Christ. So I'm a Christian, Christian anarchist. Christ is the, the one that I adhere to as my primary arche. All right, Bradley, uh, he writes about conflicts and he says, this is a tough situation. One man feels this way, another man feels that way. I personally, at this time, cannot figure out why God would make this all so tricky. That's a really good question. Have you ever wondered that? Why did God allow this to be this way? Sometimes I feel like I'm LDS again, he says. In some situations, I read different from what the prophets were teaching. But if I were boss of my uh, religion, I think I would feel a different way. I believe God gave the new commandments of faith and love. That's the only way I can see how he can get everyone on the same page. He said it, not me. He said it. That's the only way he can get everyone on the same page. That's what we're talking about here. That listen, the doctrine and the fighting, that's not going to do it. And so God allows this to go on ad nauseum because we have free will. And he allows our spirit and our willfulness to take over and fight with each other and divide and say terrible things about each other. He allows that because we're willful. But when you get people who are willing and who will say, God, you lead, we're just going to focus on believing in you and loving others, all the rest of it.
goes. That's why it's the two commandments. And Bradley, he, he figured that out. And I think it's great when people figure it out. When you make it anything more than faith and love, and you know what people will say? Faith in what? And you know what I say? That's up to you. You decide what your faith is going to be in. We'll teach what we think it is, and another guy will teach what it is, and another woman will say what she thinks it is. You study, you read the word, you figure out what the faith is. We'll tell you, but you figure out what it's going to be, but I'm not going to divide with you on what you say it is. We're just going to believe individually, and we're going to love. You do that. If we can do that, we can start a revolution in this world with this faith, a revolution that we can start, but it won't happen as long as there's people who are going to be like, well, that's a good idea, but, and then it's lost. The key to it is the preterist understanding. The reason is, is because then you read the Bible as having purpose in place at that time materially and having lessons and spiritual insights to us individually today. Most wonderful book on earth but everyone reads it themselves and they grow spiritually individually by it. It's not the manual for the masses. And then Joseph writes and says, I served a mission in Missouri and learned a lot about church history that shocked me, but I put it on the shelf having had kids in it now. I drove, it drove me crazy that there wasn't, they weren't teaching the real way Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. Eight months ago I learned that Joseph Smith married men's wives, other men's wives, and have not been to church since. When I was active, I had Christians tell me that I'm leading my family to hell. But now that my, my family is telling me that I'm going to hell. Luckily, my wife is with me in seeing, the way, seeing things the way they are. Isn't that funny? You know, it, it happens to everybody. It's, like, it's the old story. I got to tell it. Helen Keller, uh, you know, when, when she was... Uh, really upright and strong. She was inspiring uh, presidents. We have a picture of Dwight Eisenhower and Helen Keller's there and she's touching his face and it's so, so patriotic and, and everyone's holding up Helen Keller as just this really great woman. And then it come to find out Helen Keller was a raving socialist and she, she just despised uh, much of uh, uh, what America was about at the time. And then when people found out she was a raving socialist, they all said, well, you can't trust a blind, deaf, mute. <laughs> and so, and that's what we do to each other. When I was going against the Mormons, baby, and I didn't even look at Christianity, oh, yeah, 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 you're the best, Sean. You're so good. You got Jesus in you. And then you turn around and focus some light on the Christian faith. Oh, he doesn't know anything. He, didn't, he never learned anything. He's not, he's not an official pastor. That guy was a sinner. He's crazy. We never really embraced him. If we all do it. It's just ugly blah. So I get it. Ugly blah. Uh, and then finally this says from Brandon, hey, I went to a Mormon church this Sunday because a missionary I'd secretly been planting seeds with uh, is getting sent home from his mission early because he lost his testimony. Anyway, I was in a class afterwards, and uh, the teacher asked, what do you think it will be like when you stand before God? And um, a female missionary raised her hand. He said, gender doesn't matter. But she said, we will stand before God, and we, we will look, we will say, 
excuse me, look at all our good works. Look, God, we have kept all of your commandments. And God will be so happy with us, and he will love us. End quote. And he writes, I can't believe uh, what she said. And then she started crying while she said it. My blood went cold, and I was depressed after hearing that. Love your books. Love your show. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, someone, I think it might have been Derek, sent, sent me a Mimi. And I know what it's really called. I know. I know. Uh, they sent me a Mimi. And uh, I think it was Jesus, obviously in heaven, hugging a man. And the, and the thing above him said, I'm so grateful you never drank a cup of coffee. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's, that's kind of the LDS way. You're going to go up there and God's just going to be blown away at your righteousness, at your goodness, at how wonderful you are. He, he's not going to be able to hold the, the kingdom back from you. He's going to step back and he's going to let you walk in because you deserve it. And really, that's what it amounts to in that faith. That's what's so troubling about it. And it does come through to their people, unfortunately, because there are many good people in that religion. Listen, join us next week. We'll continue on. We appreciate your emails that give us insight on the different things. And if you ever have comments, share them because I learned from them and we're all growing. And uh, we're trying to get the revolution uh, started and moving forward. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride going nowhere. I am an Existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out I'm going This man's awake A storm's arising The dawn's awaiting Till a hundred months I can feel the light-filled monkey start to